Well, I remember the day so clearly. I was in my first year of college, and as many college students do, I was going through some series of doubts and questions and disappointments about my faith. See, I had grown up in the church, and I had grown up being taught the things of God, and I went off to college, and when I went to school, I was, I was met with all these different ideas, all these different thoughts, all these colliding and conflicting messages. And then on top of that, I had made some stupid choices in my first year of college that made God feel distant. And so I'm wrestling with what the world has to teach, with the world, what the world has to offer, with what common culture has to say, which collides with Christianity, with the truths of Scripture, and then my own dumb decisions, which further pushed God away. And so I was dealing with doubts, disappointments, and serious questions about my faith. And so to handle this, I did what any good boy from northern Minnesota does. I went out in the woods. I'm from Grand Marais, Minnesota, and I was home for a weekend, and I remember going out in my backyard in the Superior National Forest and walking through the woods, wrestling with God, literally begging God to show me a sign. I mean, I had grown up with this faith, and and I, I had thought that God was real and that Jesus was real, but again, I'm collided with all these different things, and I'm wrestling with serious doubts, disappointments, and questions, and, and I remember this day so clearly out in the woods. I was picking up sticks and like hitting them against trees, and like a little 19-year-old boy, I was probably expressing myself in some embarrassing ways, but maybe some of you have been there before where you're just crying out, God, would you show yourself to me? Would you, would you prove that you're real? I can't, I can't figure out in my mind what I'm supposed to believe, how these contradictions seem to work out, and, and my own sin is, is weighing heavy on me. And God, would you just speak? Would you speak to me the way that you did in the Old Testament? You, you showed up in a burning bush to Moses. Your audible voice came from heaven and, and spoke to those who were following you. Jesus came and he did miracles and he made himself obviously known to those around him. God, would you just show up to me in that type of way? And he didn't. I went back home and I lived my life. That was 15 years ago, and as I consider the last 15 years and my life since that moment, and ultimately as I consider biblical texts like the one that we have before us today, I've realized that spiritual questions, doubts, and disappointments aren't removed in a moment by getting a sign from God. They're resolved over time as we learn to follow Jesus and trust his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm sure some of you have been there before where you just want God to show up, God to make himself obvious. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he does show up in miraculous ways. And sometimes he gives us a sign that helps with our doubt, with our fears, with our questions, with our disappointment. But more often than not, God doesn't remove these things instantly with a miraculous sign. More often than not, these things are resolved in our soul as we learn to apprentice Jesus, as we walk with Jesus, as we follow him over time, as we learn to trust who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. As we learn to to remember that he lived the perfect life that we're incapable of living, and he died the sacrificial death in our place on the cross, but he overcame sin and death and the grave. As we learn to trust that, our spiritual questions, doubts, and disappointments begin to be resolved. Not all of them are resolved. Certainly, you will walk through life with questions, with doubts, with concerns, but they begin to dissipate as you consider who Jesus really is and as you learn to walk with him. Our text for today shows us there are no quick fixes. Well, maybe I shouldn't say there are no quick fixes or answers to spiritual growth. There are few 
quick fixes or answers to spiritual growth. See, we're saved in an instant. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're justified. We're made right with God. We're saved instantaneously. But we're sanctified. That means we grow up to become more like Christ and to believe him and to trust him over a lifetime. We're saved in an instant, but our spiritual growth takes a lifetime. We'll see that today as we follow three movements through this text, this seemingly weird and disconnected text, is it not? I mean, Jesus is asked to give a sign, and he talks about Jonah, and he talks about Solomon, and then there's something about like haunted houses and demons and waterless places, and what does that have anything to do with the previous text? And then the next text is Jesus offending his mom by saying that, well, anyone's my mother who follows me, and his birth mother, Mary, has to be pretty offended by that, right? If you know moms, you know that they want credit for their children, right? They, they've done a lot of work to bring those children into this life and to raise them up. And so to have your son be like, well, anybody's my mom. What's significant about my mom? Anyone who follows me can be considered my, my spiritual mother, metaphorically, right? And so this, this weird text, what does it have for us? Well, today I think it shows us this reality, that our questions, our doubts, our disappointments generally are not removed like that by a sign from God. They're generally worked out over a lifetime, as we learn to trust Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and ultimately his resurrection. So the first movement here in this text is really Jesus warning us against spiritual arrogance. The spiritual arrogance of seeking signs. Look at it with me, Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. And so if you remember, over the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is doing all these incredible miracles He's done amazing signs and wonders. He's cast out demons. In fact, in the previous passage, he had just casted a demon out of a man. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, saw this happen. They're, they're, they're following Jesus. They're, they're observing Jesus. There's, remember, we've talked about this a handful of times through the book of Matthew, that there's the crowd following Jesus. They're curious about who Jesus is and what he can do for them. And then there's the religious spiritual leaders following Jesus. And they're following him because they want to observe what he's doing because they want to get rid of him. They want to remove him. They, they actually end up, as we know the story, they crucify him because they are, they are opposed to his message of this upside-down kingdom. He doesn't fit their expectations of what the Messiah would be. And so there's the crowds, there's the religious leaders, and then there's this committed core, these people who are learning what it means to follow Jesus. They're actually surrendering and submitting their life to him. They're bowing their knee to him as king. They're saying, you, you are the Messiah, it's been prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and, and you are showing yourself to be the Messiah and we are learning what that means and, and we are following you. And so there's these three groups of people. And here in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, we get a glimpse into the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus had done these amazing miracles in front of them. They had, he had just casted out a demon in front of them and they come to him again and they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Are you kidding me? How many signs, how many miracles, how many wonders have we just seen through this book? If you've been with us for a few months, you know almost every week there's something miraculous, some kind of sign going on here. But the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they, they're asking Jesus for more. There's this spiritual arrogance that they are living their life with, thinking, well, we know what the Messiah ought to look like. 
We know how God ought to rule his kingdom. We know how God ought to interact with us and how God ought to operate. Ever been there before? I think many of us in many different times and seasons in our life, we're, we're guilty of living like a Pharisee or a scribe. Where, where God's not, he's not playing by our rules. He's not meeting our demands. He's not doing the things that we assume would be the best. Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 6 to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus modeled this for us when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross and he's feeling the weight of what he's about to bear, all the sin and the shame of the world on his shoulders. He doesn't want to do it, humanly speaking, fleshly speaking. He says, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, my, my, my human will, my fleshly will, doesn't want to suffer. But Jesus submits himself to God's ways, trusting that God's way is better than his own human flesh. And he says, not what I will, but your will. Your will be done, Father. And so Jesus followed God's will to the cross. So I think many times we are similar to the Pharisees, to the scribes. We're asking for signs. We're seeking a sign. We, we want God to really prove himself to us. This passage is revealing to us this spiritual arrogance that oftentimes religious leaders and those who have been around religious circles for a long time carry. David Turner, in a commentary on this passage, has a very helpful phrase. He says, Jesus' miracles are deeds of power done with compassion for those in need, not spectacular feats designed to to convince skeptics. You hear that? When, when we look through the book of Matthew, Jesus' miracles are actually deeds they're, they're, that's power done for those in need. They're not for skeptics looking for a sign. When Jesus is healing people, it, it is giving a sign to the world that he is the Messiah, that he is the one prophesied in Isaiah when it says that he would come and, and he would set people free from oppression. So it's giving a sign to the world of who Jesus is, but he's not performing for skeptics. There's a spiritual arrogance that we see here in the text when people come to God and they say, well, if you're really God, you better prove it to me. And in church, let's be wary of stepping into that space. And the good news of the gospel, and we'll get there, is that God forgives us even when we step into that space because we're all guilty of that. But let's keep this in mind, that this text is revealing to us this heart this posture of spiritual arrogance where we come and say, Teacher, God, we wish to see something. We wish to see a sign from you. Prove yourself. Show up and prove yourself to me. And how does Jesus answer? Verse 39, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. See, see, the difference here is when Jesus is doing these sign miracles, again, like the commentator said, he's doing it out of compassion, out of charity, out of care for those who are hurting and broken. Not to prove to the skeptics that he has more power than them, that he has all the power of God available to him, that he is God in flesh, that he is the Son of Man. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, what, what, what does he mean by this? Well, he goes on to explain it a bit. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so some people get caught up on like three days and three nights. 
if Jesus died on Friday and, you know, Good Friday, we acknowledge his death on Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection. Is it really three days and three nights? In, in Jewish thought, in Jewish culture, any part of a day constituted a, a day. So there's no contradiction here. If you're one of those people who get very tied up onto, like, how does this match up? In Jewish culture, if they say a day, it, it refers to a day. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days. Three days, three nights. Any part of a day constituted a day and a night. And so there's no issues here. Jesus is saying, it, it's just this parallel. It's this comparison. Jesus is saying, the same way that Jonah went into the belly of a fish, if you remember the story from the Old Testament, he was thrown overboard. He was, he was running from God. And this is interesting that Jesus actually compares himself to Jonah. Because Jonah was a bad prophet who did not listen to God. He did not want to do God's will. He wanted to do his own will. He ran from Nineveh. He didn't want to go to those people. He didn't want to share God's message of reconciliation and compassion and grace with those people. And he's thrown overboard and a great fish swallows him up. And after three days, he spit out on the shore and he goes to Nineveh and he proclaims the good news. He, he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. He proclaims, repent. He calls the people to repent and follow God and they all do it. It's amazing. This entire city is, there's this revival in this city as Jonah comes up, you know, like fish slime on him. Who knows how he wandered into the city and he's proclaiming repent, and they all repent, they all listen. And J Jesus here, you know, it's just this interesting parallel because J Jonah is a terrible prophet who kicked against God's will, and Jesus is the perfect prophet who always submitted to God's will. But the point here is that he's saying, the only sign I will give you is that of Jonah, that, that I will go into the belly of the earth for three days in a, in a similar fashion, with similar imagery to how Jonah went into the belly of the earth. And then I will come out of the earth. I will, raise, I will be raised from the dead, overcoming sin and death in the grave. And the world, those who believe in me, those who repent, will find forgiveness. In the same way that Nineveh found forgiveness. They experienced the compassion of God. Verse 41, he says, Then the men of Nineveh will rise up and at the judgment with his generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so Jesus is saying, this entire city repented at the preaching of Jonah when he came and he said, repent. And now something greater than Jonah is here, a greater prophet, the only son of God is here who will overcome sin and death and the grave. And so those who repented in Nineveh by, in their biblical biblical redemptive history, they ha didn't have Jesus given to them yet, they will come and they will judge the Pharisees and the scribes and anyone who is spiritually arrogant towards Jesus and who pushes him aside. And those who are looking for a sign, Jesus says, no sign will be given but this, I will die and I will be raised to new life. Now, he doesn't mean that there won't ever be any more miraculous signs. How do we know that? Because he does miraculous signs throughout the rest of the book. And then in the book of Acts, there's miraculous signs that are done. I think when he says no other sign will be given, in verse 39, he's saying specifically right now in this moment as you're asking, I'm not going to perform for you. If you remember a couple weeks back, uh, look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 and 17. This again is the Pharisees and the religious leaders being angry with Jesus. Matthew 11, 16 and 17. He says, what shall I compare this generation 
Again, in 12, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And here he's saying, what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and, and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. See, Jesus is saying, I, I'm not going to perform a sign here and now in this moment to prove to you skeptics that I'm God. No, the, the proof that I am God will come when I overcome sin and death in the grave, when I burst out of the grave fully alive, granting new life to anyone who would repent and follow me. And so Jesus isn't playing to their spiritual arrogance. He's not offering them a sign. And then he moves on. He gives us another comparison, another parallel. Verse 42. The queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba. This is a story from 1 Kings chapter 10. It says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jot down 1 Kings chapter 10 and go read that later on. It's a fascinating story. The queen of Sheba, this pagan nation, she hears about Solomon's wisdom. Solomon, the king of the Israelites, appointed by God. The, the king of Yahweh's nations. The God above all gods. The great I Am. She hears that this King Solomon has wisdom, and so she travels from Sheba. She's the queen of the south, the, the, the country of Sheba, and she comes and she seeks Solomon's wisdom. And, and she listens to Solomon, and so here Jesus is saying, even her, this, this pagan queen, she came and she listened to the message of God, the wisdom of God through the king of Solomon. But you Pharisees, you scribes, you religious leaders, you spiritually arrogant, you are here hearing the voice of God through the person of Jesus, seeing the works of God, and your hearts are turned off, they're cold. You're seeking another sign, you will get no sign. Not in this moment. Keep following Jesus, you're going to see many more signs throughout the book of Matthew. But he's saying, I'm not, I'm not playing that game. You come to Jesus with spiritual arrogance saying, God, you, you better prove yourself to me. And there's a difference between a desperation, right? God, I'm desperate for you. Would you show up in some way? But even in those moments, generally... Our, the, these desperate cries for help are met over time as we continually surrender and submit ourselves to Jesus and repent of our, of our human thinking and our faulty thinking. Repenting is turning from what's wrong and turning to what is right, turning to Jesus. He called us in Matthew chapter 17 to repent. Matthew chapter, 9, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, to turn and follow him. And so these things are resolved as we continue to follow Jesus and as we grow, generally not in a mo moment by a sign. And he's saying e even these people of old understood that. They repented, they turned from their ways, and they followed God. And so they're going to rise up and they're going to judge the spiritually arrogant who are expecting Jesus to perform for them. The second movement that we see here in this text is that of spiritual ignorance. We see Jesus' warning of spiritual ignorance and seeking spiritual growth, cleansing, or filling apart from Christ. So he moves on and he goes from this, the sign of Jonah, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. No signs will be given here in this moment to kind of going back earlier in the first part of Matthew chapter 12. He, remember, he had casted out a demon. And so in the first century, in these Jewish circles, there was a lot of demonic presence and oppression in the, the Jewish 
culture would have understood this more, and so he uses this commonly understood thing among the spiritual circles of that day and age in verse 43 through 45 to say, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, so when there's an exorcism, when a demon is cast out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. It's interesting. Remember in Matthew chapter 12 at the end, Jesus said, come to me all who labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. There's this, there's this parallel here between the spiritual forces of evil seeking rest and finding none and the invitation for us to come to Jesus and find rest. It's a side note, but it's an interesting parallel there, this use of rest by Jesus. He says this, the spirit is cast out seeking rest, but he finds none. Verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. So really what Jesus is doing here is he's using this common Jewish knowledge and and among these spiritual circles to understand that when an exorcism happens, there needs to be a replacement of that void. So if a demon is cast out, really what's happening here is Jesus is saying it needs to be filled with the substance of Christ. If you cast out a demon and leave that person void, a legion of demons will come back and fill that person. Spiritual reformation or spiritual growth has to be centered on being filled with Christ, not on emptying ourselves. And so he's using this Jewish knowledge to say, so it will be with this evil generation at the end of verse 45. Because Jesus is here, the substance is here. Scripture refers to Jesus as, as the substance. There's shadows, and Jesus is the substance. He's the figure. He is the Son of God. And so he's here. He's ready and willing to fill any spiritual being who would come to him. And he's saying, you can do all you want to clean yourself up spiritually, to cast out demons, to get rid of spiritual oppression, to to seek your own healing and to find spiritual health and wholeness. You You can do meditation to empty yourself. You can work through reconciliation steps with those that you've wronged to to heal relational brokenness. You can do all of this spiritual pursuit. But if you don't fill the emptiness that you create through spiritual pursuit, see, meditation could could empty you, it could rid you of some bad considering the things that have happened to you throughout your life and and kind of recounting them and renouncing them and doing some of these spiritual activities that the world will teach us to do, it can actually bring you some momentary health. Like, all of a sudden, I'm emptied. If you you talk to anyone who's dealt with addiction or abuse, they'll, they'll talk through, and they've done some secular counseling, they'll talk through, like, how to get rid of these bad things and how to clean yourself up and to to, to try and get rid of what's happened to you and get rid of the bad forces of evil, whether it's memories, whether it's demonic, whatever it may be. But Jesus is saying if you don't fill that void with the substance of Christ, it's going to be worse off for you in the long run. In, in fact, it's interesting, just this morning as I hopped on to look over my notes and I was listening to a song that the band was doing this morning on YouTube, and this little ad popped up on the side of YouTube, and it said, heal yourself with energy medicine. I didn't click on it, because I don't know what energy medicine is, and I didn't want to waste my time this morning before preaching, but I just thought, how interesting. Isn't that, isn't that the world? Like, heal yourself. We've got energy medicine. You can tap into this, these higher powers, or whatever it may be, and Jesus here is wanting his followers not to be spiritually ignorant, 
that there's the way, the truth, and the life, and his name is Jesus. There's all these other paths, all these other approaches, all these other things that will come at you and try and get you to find health and healing spiritually, but without Christ, it will leave you empty. What Jesus is getting at here is that it's spiritual ignorance to seek spiritual reformation without the Spirit's regeneration. It's spiritual ignorance to seek spiritual reformation, like a a reformation, a reform of your spiritual life without Holy Spirit's regeneration. We need to be made new. We need the Holy Spirit of God, which we talked about last week, to come upon us and to make us new. We cannot fill our spiritual voids. We need the great exchange, as Martin Luther called it, where Jesus takes our sin, our shame, our wrong pursuits, our lack of repentance upon himself, and he calls us to repent, to, re- to turn from our evil ways, from our, from our wicked and adulterous, our evil and adulterous thinking that would line up with this generation, from our spiritual ignorance, from our spiritual arrogance. He says, turn from that and turn to me and you will receive life, the great exchange. Jesus takes all of our junk upon himself and he imputes to us, that is, he gives to us his righteousness. Amen, church? That's what we gather to celebrate. That's why this morning as we sang, I was just, oh, I needed that so bad because I I preach that to myself all week as I prepare sermons and stuff, but then to gather with you and sing that truth that it's not because I give a good sermon or it's not because I had a good week or it's not because I did my devotions or it's not because I conquered that sin or it's not because this thought pattern, this faulty thought pattern of mine is getting better and better. It's because Jesus is enough. Jesus has given me his righteousness. So this passage is teaching us to not be spiritually ignorant. To not try and clean ourselves up spiritually and to reform ourselves, to present ourselves to God as a better form of Andrew. No, that's not what we do when we gather in church or gather in community groups or do devotions. We're not trying to clean ourselves up and present to God a better version of us. No, we are coming and saying, God, would you, would you reform me? Would you fill this emptiness, this void? I don't want to clean up this spiritual house. This is what it's getting at here in 43 through 44, 45. I don't want to clean up this spiritual house just for the sake of reformation's sake, for the sake of moral do-goodism's sake, for the sake of just being a better human being for these 60, 80, 70 whatever, 20 years of life that I have. No, I, I want something more. I want to be filled So Jesus is teaching his followers not to be spiritually ignorant about these things, but to come to him. And then this leads us into the third movement, which is Jesus offering a spiritual acceptance. Or is it it Jesus offending his mom, like his mom and his siblings? No, what it is is Jesus offering spiritual acceptance. So he says, while he was still speaking to the people... Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. So he's, he's in a home or he's in some kind of colonnade here speaking to the Pharisees, speaking to the scribes, speaking to the crowds, and Jesus' blood relatives come. His mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him. So some, somebody runs along and is like, Jesus, your mom and your, your brothers are outside. Your family's outside. They want to talk to you. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 48. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Mary's like, Jesus, I'm your mother. 
Come on, surely I'm on a certain plane than any other woman who trusts you, right? And, and his brothers are like, no, we're your brothers. We beat each other up when we were kids. We know each other's secrets. You know our secrets. You have no secrets. You're perfect. But, but you're our brother, Jesus. Come on. Certainly we have some kind of special standing with you, Jesus. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples. So in this crowd of people, in this home or colonnade who are listening, there's scribes and Pharisees. There's, there's the crowd. There's those who don't believe, those who want to criticize and accuse Jesus. And then there's those who are learning to believe, those who are learning to trust in who Jesus is and what he's done. He reaches his hand out towards them, towards his disciples, his followers. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. See, the beauty of that church is that Jesus is saying anyone who over a course of time, and this, again, we're saved instantly, but we learn to follow Jesus, we learn to do God's will over time. He's saying anyone who's being conformed into the image of Christ, anyone who is submitting their own personal human fleshly will to the will of God the Father, they are accepted into my family. They are welcomed. Here are my mothers, here are my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister. See this beautiful parallel here? Jesus is telling us that, that we are invited into the family and the first step of doing the will of God is to find fellowship with Jesus. Look at the familial language Jesus uses. He doesn't say these people are my servants, though in Scripture, following Jesus, we're considered servants. Like there's, there's many different ways you can look at the relationship that we have to God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit living within us. But one of the ways is this familial language, this, this, this love language of brothers and sisters. Anybody who follows me, and so the first step, to how do you know if you do the will of God? Look at verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. How, how do we know if we're one who's doing the will of God? I would submit to you that the first step to doing the will of God is to be in relationship with Jesus. It, it, it's not to be the spiritually arrogant who's trying to make God prove himself to you, it's not to be spiritually ignorant, just kind of following the teaching of the day and bouncing back and forth from here to there, but it's, it's being spiritually accepted. It's finding right relationship. It's not reforming your spiritual life. It's, it's being regenerated in your spirit. It's being welcomed into the family of God. And I think once we're welcomed into the family of God, once we begin to build a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son, and this is interesting parallel and imagery here that Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. We're, we're on this family standing, on this united ground with Jesus, the Son of God. Romans calls him the second Adam. It's like the brother of Adam. Adam was created, the first human being, and he wrecked and destroyed everything because of spiritual ignorance and, and arrogance, wanting to be like God, listening to the lie of the serpent. And here Jesus, the second Adam, came, our, our older brother, to live the life that we can't and die the death that we should so that we could be brought into right relationship with God the Father and it's through Jesus' sacrifice, our older brother. 
here are my mother, here are my brothers, whoever does the will of God. And so the first step to doing the will of God is to get into right relationship with him. How do we do that? Flip back to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus tells us how to do that right in the beginning of his ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, this is right after Jesus' baptism, his ministry is beginning. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your wrong thoughts, from your spiritual ignorance, from your spiritual arrogance, from trying to do it yourself. Repent and turn from a life of sin and a life of destruction. And Repentance is both turning from bad and turning to what's right, to what is good. So turn from faulty thinking, turn from sin, turn from evil, and turn to good, turn to God. And then verse 19, he says, And to those... And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So there's this repentance. There's turning from what's wrong and turning to what's right, following Jesus, walking in relationship with him. Back to Matthew chapter 12 at the end. So whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, what's the will of the Father in heaven? It's to repent. It's to turn from whatever the world would throw at us that's not of God and turn to him in faith and fellowship. The will of God is ultimately to be in right relationship with him through the Son, Jesus Christ. And all the sub-wills, I don't, I don't know if God has sub-wills. Um, I, don't, I don't like, you know, sub-points. So what's the will of God? For us to be in right relationship with him. I think I would fill in the blank that way. And then God has a ton of things that flow out of that, right? Like, well, how am I supposed to treat my neighbor? How am I supposed to treat my family? How am I supposed to handle my money? How am I supposed to think about sex? How am I supposed to, whatever it may be. There's, there's all these different things that God actually has a will for. But I think if we turn to God and we find right relationship with him through his son Jesus Christ as being the, the, the basic starting point, the foundational step of trusting him, all these other sub-wills or all the other nuances of God's will will work themselves out in your life over time. So there's three questions I want to ask us this morning for all of us to consider. The first one, are you spiritually arrogant, seeking a sign in an effort to get God to prove himself to you? Now, if you're a believer and you're guilty of this, repent. Acknowledge it. Run back to him. He's gracious to forgive. If you're not a believer and you've spent time arrogantly seeking God, you're, maybe you're questioning God, and, and I know we have some of you among us who you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ yet. I, I want you to just humbly consider whether you asking God to prove himself to you is out of desperation and a genuine desire to know him, or is it really birthed out of arrogance? that you think you understand the world better than God does, that you think you understand your circumstances better than God does, and just wrestle with that. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, I think we all ought to be wrestling with that. Because I think sometimes we fall into this trap of wanting God to prove himself to us, when in fact he's God and we need to learn to worship him and bow down and let God be God and we are conformed to him rather than trying to get him to conform to us. So wrestle with that question this week and in your community groups. Second question, are you spiritually ignorant, seeking to clean yourself up and prove yourself to a higher power? 
I said higher power here rather than God because there's many influences in our world which will teach you that, yes, there's the spiritual reality around us. There are higher powers. And this is, this is an ignorant way to pursue life and spirituality, that we clean ourselves up, that we do good deeds to combat our bad deeds, that, that we can do these right religious practices to get in right religious standing with a God or, or like karma, like there's a spiritual karma that if we do enough good, it outweighs our bad and then the spiritual powers are going to be happy with us and bless us. And this is all over our culture. And so ask yourselves, are you spiritually ignorant? And it may be kind of in that spiritual, seeking the wrong spiritual paths way, but it could just be even, even in a Christian moralistic way, you're trying to clean yourselves up to prove to God that you're worthy of him. Never going to happen, church. This will lead you to, to spiritual agony. I see it all the time in Christians that I counsel. They're beating themselves up over their sin. They're trying to improve themselves to present to them, to, to God, a better version of themselves, and it's impossible. That's the point of the gospel. It's that Jesus really lived the life that we can't live, he died the death that we deserve and he overcame sin and death in the grave and over time, he changes us, he transforms us, he, he makes us new in an instant but we grow into that new standing over time and so church, don't be spiritually ignorant thinking that you can actually present to God a better version of yourself. There's no better version of yourself, there's an exchanged version of yourself. The righteousness of Jesus is given to you. God now, as Scripture says over and over again, he sees you in, specifically in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. If you're in Christ, he sees you as holy, blameless, pure, and spotless. You can't, you can't clean yourself up and present yourself to God holy, blameless, pure, and spotless. Jesus did that. And so, church, don't be spiritually ignorant thinking that you can impress God by your moral achievements. Last question. Are you spiritually confident, secure in your identity as a member in the family of God? Oh, church, isn't this where we need to be? Not spiritually cocky, not spiritually arrogant, not spiritually proud, spiritually confident that God has got his arms wrapped around us. That as Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, Abba, Father, that as Jesus here says at the end of Matthew chapter 12, whoever does the will of my Father, what's that will? It's to repent, it's to turn, and it's to learn to follow him over a lifetime. That whoever is seeking to do that, they are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. That if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, in spite of your doubts, in spite of your fears, in spite of your questions, in spite of your disappointments, you Christian, you follower of Christ, you have, who have been given a new nature, you are secure in your relationship with God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. As Jesus says, my Father in heaven, you cry out, Abba, Father. We are sons and daughters of God, adopted in his, into his family. And, and we're brothers and sisters, yes, of one another, but also of Jesus. Yeah, he's saying, you're in my family. And so come to him. Here's the point, church. Here's the gospel. Jesus is the sign that you need. 
He fills the house in which you live, the spiritual space that we're incapable of filling or cleaning ourselves, and he welcomes you into the family of God. And so if you want a sign, if you're seeking a sign, Jesus is that sign. That's what he's getting at here when he says no sign will be given other than the sign of Jonah. And something greater than Jonah is here. The Son of Man risen from the grave, overcoming sin and death in your place, on your behalf. You can walk out in new life because of what Jesus has done. He's your sign. If you want a sign from God, look to the risen Savior. He's also the one who fills the spiritual void, the spiritual desperation that we have in our life. And he's the one who welcomes us into the family. So this morning as we take communion, let it be a reminder to you that Jesus is all that you need. And we take communion every week at Park Community Church in spite of its awkwardness, right? Because if you're sitting in the middle of the pew, how do you get out? If the people at the edge aren't ready for you to get out or they're not moving or, or maybe they're not a Christian and they've heard the thing that this is for believers only and so they're like, well, I'm not a believer and if I don't go take, go take communion, are other people going to assume and judge me for not being a believer? Well, if you're not a believer, we're so glad that you're here. You can surrender your life to Jesus right now, today, and take communion as part of the family. But if you're not sure yet, we're still so glad that you're here. Continue to just consider And if you're stuck in the middle of a pew and it's hard and it's weird to get out, we do this as a visible reminder that we're all in need of a Savior. The the stations, two here in the front, one in the back, there's bread and cup. And the night before Jesus was crucified, he sat with his disciples and he said, as often as you do this, broke the bread, as often as you eat of this, remember my body, broken for you. As often as you drink of the cup, remember my blood shed for you. And so when we gather together as a church, in spite of the awkwardness of doing this, we intentionally do this to remind us that Jesus is the sign that we need. It's a visible reminder, the the communion elements, and then seeing the body of Christ, the church, moving to his broken body and his shed blood. It's a reminder to all of us that Jesus is the ultimate sign who overcame sin and death in the grave. That he's the one who fills our spiritual voids, our spiritual soul. And so we want to eat and drink symbolically being reminded that we want to be filled with Christ. We want to feast on Christ. We want our spiritual depths of depravity to not just be fixed and clean and done away with. We want Jesus to fill us. And then we eat as a reminder that we've been adopted into the family of God, that we fellowship with Jesus, our brother, and God, our Father, in the power of the Spirit, and we fellowship with one another, that we're a big extended family. We're having a party with God, our Father, with Jesus, our brother, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. And you can come with whatever attitude that you want. If you're ready to party with God, your Father, Jesus, your brother, and the Holy Spirit, if, if you want to somberly approach him and say, I've got some things to work through, I've, been, I've realized that I'm, a, I'm spiritually arrogant, I'm spiritually ignorant, or I've found new life in my spiritual acceptance, and so I want to celebrate this morning, come as you are. Jesus invites us that way. He says, come as you are. But don't leave change. Leave full full of the gospel, full of the truth, full of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
that you are holy, that you are just, that you are pure, that you are righteous. Lord, knowing my own thoughts, my own actions, my own intents, I'm certainly anything but that. Yet, you sent your one and only Son, Jesus the just, Jesus the righteous, Jesus the pure, Jesus the perfect, to live the life that I am incapable of living and die the death that I deserve for my sin. He overcame sin and death and the grave, defeating all of it and giving me new life. And that's true for all of us who are in you this morning, Lord Jesus. So I pray that as we observe communion, that as we eat and drink, that we would be reminded that Jesus is the sign that we need, that he fills the spiritual void that we otherwise would have, and that we've been invited into this great family for all of eternity. Meet us where we're at, Lord Jesus, and lead us to where you desire us to be, in your presence, where there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. Amen.